All right, and a starstruck episode here of Why Wait Till Sunday. I've got uh, the basically legendary thought leader, Pete Overzet here sitting across the screen from me. I never really thought this would happen when I started a podcast about a year ago, but um, a man who really needs no introduction, and um, we will just get right into it after a minute for the intro, and we will welcome in Pete Overset. Hello, and welcome to Why Wait Till Sunday. I'm your host, Alfred, and I am here with a very special guest tonight. This guy's got it all, everything you could ask for. Longhorn fans are excited about Bijan Robinson, number five. This is a guy who comes in as the number one running back recruit in the country. Elite, elite, elite. Back to the ground with Robinson who spins and then tries to bounce it. A stiff arm, another one as he rides it, keeps his balance. They're going to say step down. He's got tremendous upside. By Stevenson, wrapping a little bit of pressure as he launches it downfield. Touchdown Sooners, the breakout freshman, Marvin Mims. Is so confused on defense. Lane Kiffin was trying to get a timeout. Instead, it's a first down and it's a touchdown for defense. He's my play of the week. Smash potential here. That's what I'm saying. The royalty of college football is in assembly at the Rose Bowl 2006. All right. Well, like I said, my guest today needs really no introduction, but I'll do a short one anyway. Uh, Pete Overzet is a fantasy football thought leader, of course, DFS streamer, podcast host, and he's a very funny guy. He does a daily fantasy newsletter with Matt Barry. You may have heard of him. Uh, he does live streams. He does the randomizer draft. He's the commissioner of the Yuck Dynasty League, which I have a connection with him to do uh, as a member of that league. Also dabbles in NFTs, top shots. The guy can really do it all. And on top of everything else, I guess he's now a close personal friend of Patrick Laird <laughs> after a uh, 2020 bit that went out of control. So uh, welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I know. You you said you didn't think this would ever happen. I mean, we're in the same dynasty league together. I mean, the, you know, we're just a couple of pals doing a show at this point. Yeah, I mean, my dream come true, really. Um, I lucked into Justin Herbert last year at the end of the first round, and now I'm actually poised to, to do something in that league after taking over an absolute dumpster fire. Do you remember the trade you offered me that I turned down? <laughs> no, what was it? You offered me a trade with Herbert for LaVisca. And I had already established my brand around it. And I was just like, I can't do this. Like you offered me a very fair trade. And it, I mean, that's a disaster for me. Oh my. I, I mean, looking back on that, I must have wiped it out from my memory because that would have been ill-advised uh, yeah. for me. Well, good for me. I, I'm now poised to actually do something in year two in that dynasty. So I'm excited about that. But first, before we get into it, you know, you, you do so many things. Um, and you do it all with a nice, uh, funny flair. Uh, you're one of my favorite followers have been for a long time, but what is your favorite current project? I mean, you got so much going on. What do you really like right now? Yeah, it, it's hard. I don't want to single anything out in that. I do a lot of stuff with other co-hosts and stuff, but honestly, the, 
the show I do by myself that I enjoy the most is the randomizer drafts. I think it's like the format that's perfectly situated or, um, I don't know, reflects my skill set the most and just kind of handling chaos, rolling with the punches, putting on a really entertaining stream while drafting fantasy teams. And uh, yeah, I just really look forward to it every Thursday. And then I, I love shows where when you have the guest on, like the show is very catered to the guest and the way the randomizer prompts work is everyone's suggesting their favorite bits revolving around that guest. So I love each episode feeling so different because the wheel and everything is like built around that guesses, guess, you know, sensibilities. When we have Denny on, there's all kinds of meat mountain <laughs> suggestions. We have Leone on, who's a big Jersey aficionado. Jerseys were playing a big part. So I love that, uh, that format. And so, yeah, the randomizers are, are great. They are they are just an absolute blast, uh, a very unique and fun way to put people in a in a in a you know an interesting situation drafting a team. Nice little twist there, I think, very cool. Um, so yeah, like we said, you know we we touched on the dynasty league we're in. So clearly, around January February every year, you start getting into rookies. Yeah, um, this is a college football kind of centered podcast. Um, so I am deeper in the sense of, I do keep track a little bit more of the college players when they're, when they're doing their college production and everything. So uh, let me just ask you as an obviously pretty avid dynasty player, do you really just sink your teeth into the rookies kind of for the first time, like as the calendar turns or what's your process in knowing these guys before they actually hit the NFL draft? Yeah, I would say it's changed a couple of years. And I, I would say COVID has kind of thrown off the excitement of someone like me who's willing to be obsessed about this stuff, but could maybe easily be pushed off of it and not having the combine as kind of that kickoff event where all the times are coming in, we start to be able to really put the puzzle pieces together for these prospects. That's normally what used to suck me in and get me obsessed even before the NFL draft. And without that, the past two years, it's just been a little easier for me to push it off and be like, you know what? Once these guys are drafted, then I'll start to dig in, then I'll care. So I would say in the past couple of years, I hasn't cared as much, but I'm guessing next year when the combine is back, that I'll be ready to dive in early with the rest of you sickos. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I'm really a sicko because I'm I'm diving into incoming freshmen uh, on the college side already. But um Okay, so yeah, I mean, you know, the angle that I'd like to do and kind of my, my, my gospel, I guess, that I preach to people is if you're in Dynasty, you are so close to really wanting to do Devi and, and, um, and because, for instance, you can, like Eli Moore could have been a last round pick in your Devi draft last year. Most people didn't know much about Eli Moore. Now, he's a pretty sought after early second round pick. Um, in your dynasty or your dynasty rookie draft. So I just, I love the idea. You can stake your claim on a guy before there be, you know, talked about so much in the content. The dynasty content is so pervasive that if you go a little bit deeper, there's an edge, I think, to know your guy before everybody else knows your guy. So um, have you ever considered Devi, uh, which is a step removed from the full C2C thing, but just that one layer next. Yeah, so I, I dabbled in it with one of Scott Fish's Capitalist Pigs leagues. Um, <laughs> my buddy Brian Donnelly, who's in our Dynasty League, his handles Domo Mariota. We managed a team in that. We ended up bowing out after a few years, partly because 
we were, people were running circles around us who actually understood the Devi angle. And I think to me, that's what's hard about it, you know, with the college prospects. I mean, draft capital is such a just good general predictive thing for where these guys should be valued that you don't have to do a shit ton of homework to like really get caught up to speed. Whereas if I feel like I'm wading into the Debbie waters, I, it feels like it opens up this massive world where the people who work the hardest are going to be rewarded, rightfully so. And I'm just worried that with my addictive personality, that I don't have the time to become obsessed with trying to keep tabs on every high school player in the nation. Yeah, I mean, you certainly can't be on the forefront of Top Shot and also Devi, uh, probably. Um, but yeah, you know, it is fun because part of it, I, I've learned even getting into the Devi and then even the college side, full college side, is understanding how to even kind of project draft capital, like judging group of or power five guys more than group of five guys. And sometimes you just look at a depth chart. I mean, just freaking take all the Alabama receivers and one of them is going to hit. You know, yeah. it's like... Um, so there are strategies even behind that. And that, that's what I love. I mean, anytime you dive into like another layer, you find new edges and you, uh, in the DFS world, you're always looking for a fractional edge under competition. And so I think, um, that's why I like it so much. But the other thing is following college football at all. Do you do that? I mean, you're in Boston. Uh, so I know the Northeast is not quite as into college as the Southeast, which is where I am, you know, college football Saturdays, like. A religious experience. Yeah, I I don't follow uh, college football that closely. Uh, partly too, because like you said, during the season, it, I mean, when you're doing content and you're managing all these season long leagues, like the calendar fills up quickly. You're watching Monday night football, Thursday night football, Wednesday's the night you're putting in all your drafts. Saturday night you're building your lineup. Sunday you're doing all that, and then it's like, okay, Saturday is my one chance to be like a normal functioning human being and spend time with people I love. And so again, going back to the addictive personality thing, I worry if I were to become obsessed with college football, and now I'm at home watching college football all day Saturday, NFL all day Sunday. I think I might end up uh, thrown out on the street in a single man. Yeah, your wife could definitely leave you uh, at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, so. You know, I have I have learned though. I will say for the Devi aspect, so C two C and college DFS, which we'll get into a touch. But uh, the Devi, you, you don't really have to watch college football. You yeah. just need to dig a little deeper and kind of in the off season, you're just doing kind of production and seeing metrics and and stuff like that, and some film if you're into that sort of thing too. But um, you don't have to actually watch because you're not getting you're not setting lineups. Uh, so I think it's uh, something. That's uh, doable if you're already into Dynasty, but um, and it, you know it's a gateway though, like you said, uh, addictive personality. It's certainly the gateway drug into knowing the Toledo's third round, third uh, third string running back. You know what? What are the most you know? Obviously, with the college stuff, like now, there's so many things dialed in as far as college production, breakout age, market share, like a lot of good metrics. What? Are, what's the data or predictive things for Debbie? Because I just assume it's so hard where all these guys are studs in high school, they're crushing, um, you know, they're still growing, so their measurables aren't solidified. Like, where do you find signal for the Debbie guys? Yeah, great question. Um, the there has been some some studies and some research behind this. Rotoviz does some of this stuff where, you know, they do look at incoming freshman and like the average, you know, guy does gain 20 pounds. So sometimes when you're looking at, in terms of you're talking about growth, 
Height, probably not, and I'm not that worried about height, but weight, you can expect about 15, 20 pounds. So uh, if a guy comes in at 165 and he's a wide receiver, you can expect him to be 185, 190 by draft time, and I think that's just fine. Yeah. So there, there have been people that have looked at that. Uh, so you can add on the weight and project and hope they hit a certain, you know, if you're a BMI guy, you know, I know that's a third rail, but if you care about BMI, you can kind of project what you expect. But the big thing is, Recruiting, and yes, they are all awesome in high school. That's why they're going to a big school. But really what you want to look at is that early production. And so you, so to me, uh, year one or year two, you can basically start writing guys in or out. You know, If they haven't done anything by year two, just like when we look at a draft prospect and he didn't pop until year four and he's you know not that exciting, you can do the same thing in Debbie. So basically... If you take a guy and he doesn't do anything by year two, you can drop him or maybe you try to trade him, but you can write him off almost before you even get through that whole NFL draft, you know, combine stuff, because if he hasn't popped in year two, that's a bad, I think that's a red flag. The other, so there's a guy who was like a top five receiver, uh, went to Texas A&M and he literally didn't play a snap last year. <laughs> so that was his freshman season. And to me, He's already off my list. Like if you can even get on the field, that's a big problem. Even though he's super athletic and you look at his tape and he looks amazing. He's doing backflips at six foot four, 215 pounds, yeah. but a backflip doesn't get you fantasy points. Right. So he, when he was put in a situation trying to actually play football, he wasn't successful. He didn't do anything. So you need to really, I think the biggest thing with Debbie is actually letting go of your priors quickly. Yeah. When they haven't shown it quickly because you just hang on to a guy. And then, you know, I've got Debbie guys who are getting graduated to their NFL rosters and they're like fourth round, fifth round NFL picks. And so now yeah. you've wasted that spot. You're bringing on Tamari on Terry, who is in UDFA this year, but you held on to him. I mean, he was a weird one because he actually looked good, but you just have to really loosely hold what you think. Cause like you said, the incoming info when they're coming into high from high school to college, all looks great. And you have to do your decision-making once they're on the field and just be able to say, nah, he wasn't what I thought he was. And I, I bet the it's even harder with Debbie guys to let go because it's there's more the element of you uncovered this gem. Like there probably isn't a ton of articles, a ton of things. In the NFL, it's like, okay, I might like La LaVisca Chenault, but he's not a secret. Like everyone knows about LaVisca, but with the Debbie, I assume there's truly some gems that no one's talking about, but that also probably means it's way harder to let go of it. It is hard to let go of your guy. I mean, you followed him since you, you saw his grainy high school tape and you're like, this is the next dude. Yeah. And then, you know, it doesn't work out and you really have to just just go to the next guy, though. You know, just, you got to have a lot of guys. You can't have just one guy. Right. So yeah. then you can just you can just write him off. So, um, all right, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, and I want to talk about DFS because I last year really got into college football DFS. That was the kind of reason I did this podcast and this is all off season content. So we're changing it up a little bit, but what is your, so, I mean, do you do other, uh, sports? I know you do obviously tons of NFL, but do you, do you dabble in NBA golf, any of that stuff? Yeah. The first time I started playing kind of other sports other than NFL was right when COVID hit last year. We all had you, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was, it also coincided. I started doing this show. I do lulls on Wednesday nights with Brian Hooper, Brick 75, who's one of the best DFS players out there, has been a 
in Roto Grinders top 10 rankings for years and just incredibly sharp. And I've been able to pick his brain and learn a ton from him. And so I started playing like esports DFS. We were playing MMA, doing a little PGA. Um, but it was funny because learning how to play some of those other sports actually helped me see how I was approaching NFL DFS completely wrong. Like I was so stuck in like the player mentality, you know, who do I think is good? What teams do I think are good? Instead of like utilizing the actual game theory needed of ownership projections, ceiling projections, the things that are actually important. And it was ironically playing League of Legends DFS that a lot of these macro concepts that are transferable sport to sport, I was like, holy cow, I've been thinking about DFS completely wrong. And then I had my best season ever because I think ultimately you know, we know here that you get all the film and metrics debates. I think ultimately same with DFS, like having a knowledge of the teams and marrying that with like strong math principles and DFS game theory is really the best of both worlds. And so, yeah, learning how to play DFS and then getting to apply it to the game I know the most for fantasy, it was a was a nice experience. Yeah, you binked a couple, like two or three in a row even at one point this season, didn't you? This past yeah, I ended up finishing, I think, like third in one of the big spy contests. And then I do the I did the show uh, with Michael Leone and Joe Holka, the tilt space. And we had a team that won a $50,000 prize collectively among the three of us. So, yeah, it was, you know, even then, like I had a good season, but I know I, you still get lucky when you win. Yeah. Well, you know, so it's like I could have had the same year and had two top tens, but not a first and a third and you know only made a couple thousand dollars so the difference between like a massive year and like a good year is like very thin oh yeah uh, but it was encouraging to actually finally have results for you know working hard because as you know we all spend a shit ton of time on this and it's like you kind of have to win something for your time investment to pay off here yeah oh absolutely and you know the more i've understood i mean especially when you're talking about tournaments not only do your lineup have to hit and you got to hit the low owned guys and all this stuff, the chalk has to basically not hit. So, you know, I mean, you could probably correct me, but to me, it's like if you faded chalk a guy, but he goes off, I mean, you could be right on your lineup, but everyone else still has the chalk. So they that has to also not hit and yours has to hit. And it's obviously there is luck there for sure. Uh, hitting the right week. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that concept a little bit now that I've been doing best ball drafts. And I think there's a similarity to taking chalk and DFS because it feels comfortable. It's like, there's a consensus. Everyone agrees. This is a good play. No one ever is going to be like, you know, this is an awful play. So you just feel good. And the same when you draft a best ball team or even a season long team, you're like, I want to feel good about my starting lineup. And yet what do we see are the teams that win DFS tournaments, win best ball tournaments. There's normally something there when you draft that team, that's going to make you feel uncomfortable because it's not that likely that it will fully pay off. But if it does, it's going to pay off in a big way. So that idea of being willing to be uncomfortable, knowing that the payoff will be greater than if you're making the popular or chalky decision. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is great. And I, I may even just forget some of the schedule. I, I'd actually just love to hear more about this. Cause like you said, I do think it's transfer. These macro concepts are transferable. Um, so what did, what are the, I mean, one or two key things that you feel like you learned that you said you were playing it the wrong way. What did you learn this past year in, in league of legends? Yeah. So I was, 
I was building my lineups too much through a player specific lens. Like I'd be like, I have to have Joe Mixon in my lineup. He's such a smash play. I have to have him in and not realizing uh, there there's blender who uh, does videos for roto grinders and his famous line is play whoever you want. And he's saying that a bit hyperbolically, but the point he's making that really resonated with me is you can play anyone you want as long as the rest of your lineup actually fits in with that thing. So if I want to play a guy who's going to be 60% owned, say he's just like a smash value and it's like, whatever, I'm willing to eat this chalk. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to get unique elsewhere. And it's almost like, I think of it like a, like a game of telephone or, you know, where it's like, or that's not the perfect exact analogy, but where we're adding on and building like a game of yes. And it's like, does this next piece work with this? Okay. I put this wide receiver and now maybe I want to stack. Now maybe I want to bring back, oh, now this is chalky. I need a really low own tight end. And it's like that thinking of a lineup more holistically as opposed to individual pieces. And then I'd be like, okay, I have 3,500 for this. Just jam this and jam this in. And so I started thinking about that from lineup textures. And that was really a switch for me is if you have your favorite players, great. But that doesn't change the fact that they have the same probabilistic hit rate as the other guys. It just means that you like them more and you need to plan accordingly if that makes sense yeah i mean absolutely and i I think i think um a calculate what i learned a little bit this year especially on on the college side is games that look ugly but i mean we do this in nfl too but but games that look ugly but but you can find a, a rationale for them to be hyper scoring games um and so you know holding your nose and saying like oh the the pit va tech game looks awful but actually the defenses are worse than you think. And so, you know, then just playing it because even though it looks ugly, um, no one, you know, there's a probability that you're right. And if you're right, no one else has it. I mean, this isn't new, but like, I agree with just thinking it through if I'm right is on this, you know, what does that mean for everyone else? And, yeah. and kind of thinking through, you know, if, like you said, if you hit on the 60% and so that means everybody's got it. You have to be different elsewhere, and it's okay to eat the chalk in one spot. Uh, if you want to hit the, you know, take uh, Sam Howell in the college, you know, in the college game, he's going to have sixty points. But I've got to then take somebody, at least one or two guys that nobody else is going to have, and hope that goes off too. Yeah, I um, I ended up putting together on my YouTube channel because last year every Friday during the DFS season, I talked to another really good tournament player and I put together like a compilation of the best tips. And the number one tip uh, that I put was from Bales. And it's a very simple concept, but a lot of people don't think this way. He said, the goal is not to score the most amount of points. The goal is to win with the least amount of points. And what he's saying is like, the weeks when there's a shit ton of points, that means all the chalky popular players went off because everyone had those. You want to win when that fails and you can just squeak by. And it's like the same concept is, is a race, right? Like you're not trying to run a 5K under 20 minutes or under 18 minutes. You're trying to beat everyone else in that race. So if everyone starts out jogging, like you, you're going to start out jogging too. Like the, the time doesn't matter. So I think of thinking of it more as a competition against the field versus like, I need to score 300 points in this lineup to win is another good 
mental shift. And you'll see how many people on Twitter were like, my cash game team scored 275 points and I didn't win. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's all slate specific. It's what points did you get that your opponents didn't get? I love that. I, I think that's that's brilliant. And, you know, it's well articulated. I've thought the same Similar concept in baseball, right? So uh, when you have um, two awful pitchers going in course hmm. and, you know, everyone's just going to have all the Rockies and all their opponents because it's going to be a 15 to 14 baseball game, which is just ridiculous. But if you say, you know what, I'm just going to fade that whole game. And if it turns into a two to one, you know, crap, fantastic pitching showdown, then you win. But yeah, you're right. You're going to score not that much, but nobody else did either because they all had that two to one game stacked. So I think you're, I mean, you're right on there. That's actually a really nice way to think about it. You, you want to score just enough on a, basically a low scoring game because you faded the obvious. It, I think too, why it's hard for people is, is going back to being uncomfortable when you put stuff in, like say if you were just playing one lineup a week or something like you start and this is what happened to me last year uh, or two years ago when I had a bad season while documenting is I started to like clam up and be like, well, this is another week. I keep losing and I'm, I'm, I'm making suboptimal decisions. It's like, I'm still trying to win a tournament, but I'm trying to make safe plays because I don't want to seem dumb. And it's like, you almost need to stretch out your time horizon and think of this as like, I'm not playing 17 weeks of NFL DFS. Think about this is three years of DFS, and I'm trying to win one of these tournaments across three seasons. Because if you win one nice tournament over three seasons, you pay for all right. of your entry fees. But it's hard in that moment to be like, I'm not going to make the safe play. I'm going to make the play that's going to benefit me the most if I am correct. Yeah, and I mean, that's a big thing. It's so funny how mentally mental decision-making is so huge. Uh, you know, they were actually um, interviewing Phil Mickelson after he won yesterday, and he said that his caddy early on in the tournament said to him, he's got to make committed swings. He wasn't making committed golf swings in the beginning of the tournament. So I think, you know, we, we get, we try to hedge, we try to get not too bold or whatever. And, and you know, you just got to go. And, and like you said, be free yourself uh, from needing to win this week uh, because you have a bigger horizon. I mean, I think that's that's really smart too. Um, uh, we're gonna try, you know, we're gonna try to wrap up a little bit uh, here. So, what's the next big trend, man? You're already uh, always cresting that wave, uh, whether it's Top Shot or Best Ball or Dynasty, um, you know, NFTs, whatever. So, what's next? What can we follow you? What are you gonna give the old Pete Overzet treatment to next? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like NFTs like crashed you know, into the space, like everyone's aware of them now to some extent because of, you know, the big projects like Top Shot and Zed Run. But I do think it's it's kind of like the evolution of those things. Like you see Top Shot kind of being an extension of kind of like sports speculation as far as players mm -hmm. as a stock market. And so I think as it pertains to our space, I think we're going to continue to see kind of a melding of these elements that we all love, a sports stock market, collectibles, DFS. And I think that's what's going to be exciting is when someone can put those together in a way that makes sense. Like right now there's experimenting where there's a site called Moment Ranks. They have a DFS game right now for Top Shot. And it's a little limited and not that like intellectually challenging and stuff but the mm -hmm. the basis there of something really exciting is coming and I, yeah to me it's just that next evolution of nfts in that we can use these across all these different platforms uh so i would say that's the stuff i'm looking out for 
And uh, I mean, as a creator, I think there's lots of interesting things coming too. Um, I don't think NFTs might be it specifically. I don't even know if social tokens are going to be this. But one thing I've been reading about a lot, and this is getting a little bit in the weeds, is called DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, which sounds kind of crazy, but it's basically just a way to organize communities. And I think within like, we see all these different kind of communities in fantasy. What if there were really like trustless ways that we could all vote on things together? What if as the fantasy community, we wanted to collectively come up with standardized formats for like our drafts or our rankings or something. Right now, it's like a disaster. Some people are doing half point PPR. Some people want third round reversal, blah, blah, blah. Like what if we could collectively vote on a standard and then we all talk about that standard? So like ideas like that, uh, I think this concept of how technology can help organize us and help us accomplish more things. I, I think that's coming and is is very exciting to me. Yeah, I think we're we're I think we're hitting a bit of a of a of a inflection point the way the internet was an inflection point in the early 2000s uh, where just everything's going to change in in a lot of ways um, based on like you said I mean blockchain and the ability to do a lot of this um, you know basically you can follow things and have all these receipts basically um, anyway yeah that's really exciting. Um, yeah, with the stock market idea, kind of like, uh, I mean, I bought a Trey Young top shot moment, um, you know, mid-season because I think he's good and the, the, uh, the Hawks were trekking towards a playoff. And then last night he had that sweet game winner. Yeah. Uh, and like I immediately put it back on for like a 70 or, you know, like 50%, you know, markup basically mm -hmm. to see if I could, you know, hook it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was the idea, right? It was, yeah. it was, you know, if this guy is on a playoff team and goes off, has a big, moment in real life, you know, will his, will his, you know, it's like a stock, like did his stock go up? Can I resell it now? So that's super interesting. And the ability for us to kind of put our money where our mouth is in that way is, is really interesting and, and fun. For sure. All right. Before we go, I got to ask you, what is the most embarrassing bit you have had to explain to your wife? Wow. Um, yeah, the, I'm, I'm fortunate in that my wife is very uh, patient and understanding. So it's never that embarrassing. It's more like with my in-laws, like those are the <laughs> ones, like I had times when I, you know, went out to Vegas as man's, my, my alter ego and having to kind of explain like, so someone's paying for you to go play in the world series of poker, but you're not playing as yourself. You're playing as this character. And so, yeah, I would say those are the most embarrassing. Like whenever I have to explain a bit to my in-law, but in-laws in the way that like makes sense to them, it, it always is just so embarrassing and cringy for me to do it. Oh man, I could see how the man's would be a real problem in that <laughs> way for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, honestly, I get, I get that with the in-laws because my wife is very similar where she's super understanding and kind of like, that's cool, you know, whatever you're doing. But yeah, explain even to my in-laws like, I'm going to do a podcast. Even that is kind of like, they're like, what, what are you doing? So yeah. Yeah. I had a, my one saving grace was to kind of legitimize me was a few years ago, you know, uh, Rotobon, Pete Davidson. Yeah. Uh, he had me on cause they did the show on W E E I. They had their fantasy show. They had me on the Thursday morning of Thanksgiving. It was probably three years ago just to talk fantasy and talk about the slate. And my mother-in-law heard me at her radio. Like we were going over there later that day for Thanksgiving dinner. And she was like, holy cow, Pete's on the radio talking about fantasy. And to this point, I think that was the biggest thing. I could show them a check that I made for like a million dollars, but like just the fact that it was on W-E-E-I and they heard, I think they were like, okay, 
whatever he's doing, there's some level of professionalism to it. I think it's okay. I know. Well, then the man's really killed your professionalism. <laughs> yeah. But oh man, well that that's great. Yeah, we we all have those moments where yeah, the light comes on and they're like, oh, it's a thing. Like this is a real legitimate thing. So, well, anyway, man, I'll let you get out of here. I really appreciate you opening up some time and uh, some brilliant thoughts. Hopefully, it will filter into our DFS. Uh, you know, exploits this coming season. For sure. I will, uh, I'll send that trade offer over again, LaVisca for uh, Herbert. You should Straight take a up. hard look at it. Straight <laughs> yeah. up. I'll have to think real hard. All right, man. Take it easy. Have a good one. All right. See you guys.